0: Early on in the Kama Sutra, the male protagonist of the book is advised to be so adept at makeup that when his uh, woman friend comes to see him in the rain and her makeup starts running, he should be able to touch it up because he's so used to putting on his own makeup.
1: Welcome to Possibilities Podcast. I'm your host, Amang, and This season is called Possibilities of Love, where we explore what paths our loving desire can open up for us. Our guest today... Is Madhvi Menon. Madvi is a scholar of desire, which to me means all things yummy, and she has published several books, including Infinite Variety A History of Desire in India, Law of Desire, Rulings on Sex and Sexuality in India, and Indifference to Difference on Queer Universalism. Madhvi teaches at Ashoka University in New Delhi, and Delhi is where she joined us from. She was very kind and patient with us, and it was just such a fun and juicy conversation to have. We talk about a lot of things including mythology, caste, a broad range of sexual interactions, love, suicides, impacts of British colonialism, and a defiance that pulsating desire inspires. I hope the conversation feels expansive for you and that you can engage with it in all the ways that feel generative and aligned. Lots of love. Here's my conversation with Madhavi Menon. I read your book in the midst of the pandemic, and it was a really exciting exploration of this world that I think I've known, but you know, we live in a time when we're not talking about desire in the ways that you're talking about desire, the expansiveness, the many locations of it. You know, Your book is called Infinite Variety, A History of Desire in India. It's just a joyous read. It's not dry, even if it's history. So there was just a lot of resonant pieces for me. And I wanted to start right at the beginning of your, even in your introduction, where you talk about your choice to move back to India Mm. after living and working in the U S for 18 years. And maybe your colleagues pointed out, there wasn't that much queer theory in academic infrastructure in India, Mm. but you write that you feel like there was a rich lived history of desire Mm. that made it even more accessible to talk about. And so I want to talk about this, you know, as someone who's navigated these worlds, India and the the West and the U S and that, that feels resonant for me personally. Also, what did you learn by relocating back home that was different from
0: what you were experiencing in the West or what you were witnessing? Thanks, Amang. First of all, it's lovely to be here. And thank you for your very generous description of my book, which I must say, you know, I really enjoyed writing as well. So I'm really glad when people enjoyed reading it. I mean, I write about the difficulty I had writing it in the book itself, because I, as I said, you know, I'm not a scholar of India. I, I'm not. Indian literature or history other than, you know, the cursory levels at school. And so when my publisher wanted me to talk about, you know, a history of desire in India, I was actually very reluctant to at first and very resistant Hmm. because I felt, you know, I felt like an utter fraud. I said, you know, what do I know about India? And I'm not going to write that. And then I realized after some time thinking about it, that I actually needed to tweak my frame a little bit. So rather than seeing India as the primary motivating factor I had to see desire as the primary motivating factor. And so India then became a peg on which to hang certain ideas that I was discussing in my work as a queer theorist, in sort of discussions of queer theory or what have been animating queer theory for several decades. And so the focus became how to think about certain ideas that we take for granted, do not question, do not think about today, and how to root those ideas by thinking in terms of Indian texts or Indian histories Or Indian mythology. And so once that focus shifted, it was much easier for me to enter into the debate. And so every chapter in this book, for instance, tries to pick up one idea or question that I think we should revisit. So for instance, even if you look at a chapter on makeup, for instance, Mm -hmm. the interesting thing for me is that we have, even to this day, but certainly historically, we do not have a sense of dress as marking a difference between genders. Right. So gender is not governed by clothing Mm. the same way in the subcontinent as it might be in other parts of the world. Right. And so to me, that was fascinating, because, for instance, as I say, even in the book, early on in the Kama Sutra, the male protagonist of the book is advised to be so adept at makeup that when his uh, woman friend comes to see him in the rain and her makeup starts running, he should be able to touch it up because he's so used to putting on his own makeup. And we live in such a sort of rigidly binary world that's governed by dress codes, mm. makeup codes and appearance. Right. This actually just seemed refreshingly amazing that the gender difference is not governed by clothes, hair and makeup. Everyone seemed to have long hair. Everyone seemed to wear the most gorgeous jewelry. Everyone had makeup. And so then what do you do? How do you institute gender in such a world? And that just, you know, that's just one example of the kind of questions I was exploring in the
1: book. It's so alive in the the many, many, many examples of like the kind of boundaries that now seem to exist with this rigidity. There's just so much fluidity. There is so much possibility that exists within so many aspects of our lives. Why do you think that difference exists in the present moment and maybe specifically in the West, because I think there is a fluidity of desire that still exists with, with, when you go to India, where you're, you know, you write about this, but you see this all over when you go, people will hold like same gender folks holding hands, sleeping in the same bed. Yes. Like, It's just not a thing that you would comment on even yeah. because it exists as a norm. But here it feels like yeah. these heightened things of sexuality and desire. What do you think is some of the animating force behind those differences?
0: I don't know. The short answer is that I'm not <laughs> sure how to answer that question, but I think it is a question and I think we do need to think about it. Mm. And I don't really like talking about the West because as we know, it's so much more complex than that. So please understand everyone who's listening to this, that every time we use the phrase, the West, it really is the shorthand yes. that doesn't do justice to the kind of complexity that exists in the west as well right but when you think about ideas that are held up currently as exemplary in the west so let's just think about for instance homosexuality right there are there are ways in which the thrust at least in public in the West, is to sort of not only acceptance, but also celebration mm-hmm. of homosexuality as thinking about it as not something deviant or not something weird, but as something part and parcel of the norm. And that's great. But the thing that feels odd about that is that the West is so responsible for the demonization of homosexuality to begin with, <laughs> that it yep. just seems sort of weird that there's, Turnaround has come about now without any recognition of its historical force, because that historical force, and now, of course, I'm talking mainly about Britain and the British Empire,
2: because mm-hmm.
0: that historical force was responsible legally, morally, socially, culturally for demonizing homosexuality around the world. Yeah, You know, it seems to be sort of cyclical. So the British, for instance, come to the Indian subcontinent. And there are many, many texts, many reports, many letters, many lectures that talk about the horrors that they felt at what at the sexualities they encountered here. Right? Mm-hmm. Whether it was what they called prostitution, whether it was homosexuality, bestiality, all that they were just absolutely horrified by it. Right. And then started criminalizing it so effectively and on so many fronts that legally, as you know, and until very recently in India and still in many parts of the empire homosexuality was still illegal. Mm -hmm. This happened at a point in which the question of legality did not attach to sexuality at all. So what always interests me about this idea of the West and the East is that, first of all, we sort of flipped roles. The West was so much more, and, you know, frankly, continues to be, except for in certain pockets so much more homophobic, mm-hmm. so much more violent in relation to sexuality. Mm-hmm. Whereas the East historically has had a much, much more multiple, a much more sort of interesting cornucopia of desires. It's always been sort of too much. Yes. And, you know, as anyone, as you know, anyone being in India or Pakistan or Bangladesh, no, everything is too much. Like there's always too much. And there's nothing is sort of just right. right. Whereas in the West, that idea of too muchness is actually still viewed with some suspicion so for me fundamentally that's what is interesting and so as i said i have no answer to your question of why is the west so uncomfortable with it there are multiple possible answers religion is one of them right a certain sense of capitalism frankly is one of them mm-hmm. a certain sense of productivity which of course then homosexuality was not seen as being conducive for and so on and so forth so there's a sort of multiplicity of factors colonialism, all that that come to play. But these have not affected only the West. They've also, as I said, spilled over now into the rest of the world, which is really a pity.
1: Yeah, because I think we're in this moment, I mean, in India now, what is going on as a post-colonial hangover, which is interesting because you talk about both the conversations around homosexuality that were happening at the time of independence in the anti-colonial movement, paving the chocolate road of desire with the broom of desire is is one of the phrases that we talk about, a story called chocolate that you write about, about how there was this fermentation of anti-colonial views because they were saying somehow the British were making us gay right in their boys' schools and of course there are many schools all gender schools i went to one you know where that has been attributed to why the queerness exists interestingly as opposed (laughs) to it's just a thing yeah so this interesting flipping was happening even while colonialism was really active i mean i mean obviously here colonialism is active in its own ways in different ways canada still under the crown yeah technically and in lots of ways yeah so there's this piece of how the British, even while they were there, were being seen as these... Arbit- like, we've internalized their logic so much that we've come out on the other side. And yeah. to the extent where... I mean, in Toronto, we have a filmmaker, Alina Money Mikalai. We had just a poster of Kali smoking a cigarette and holding a pride flag. And I, as you must have seen on, on Indian TV, it was the kind of vitriolic intensity that she received for just a poster of Kali who she believes in and is you know a fan of was so intense so t- talk to me about the moment we're in in India where the restrictions and the kind of fervor against them does seem very intense and so what do you make of the moment or what do you make you know as i both in terms of a lineage and just in the present moment we're in
0: yeah among I was dreading this question because <laughs> I feel I feel so strongly about what you've just asked and You know, when you asked me earlier how my day had been, and I said, you know, as as good as it can be, frankly, that's the moment in which we're living now. It's a deeply, deeply, deeply distressing moment. And I, I didn't know about the poster with Gali watching Cigarette for the simple reason that I don't watch TV. And I try not to read the news if I can, because it is, there are just episodes like this reported every single day. And many of us just feel so utterly helpless to do anything. Right. So, yes, there is, as you know, and this is not news to you or to anybody, there is an absolutely wholesale claim being placed on something called Hinduism that many of us don't recognize. Because, as again, I I talk about in the book, Hinduism as a singular term was invented by the British. It didn't exist then. It doesn't exist now. There are 33 million gods in the Hindu pantheon. And so there are at least as many Hinduisms. But of course, the tyrannical road has always been paved with singularity rather than plurality. Right. And so Hinduism as a single term, as a singular term, has come to be chanted now by the majoritarian forces in this country as somehow meaning one thing and the same thing to everybody. And so the minute you sort of go against that, the meaning that they attribute to it, you are considered, you know, whatever, it, take your pick, anti-national, a mm-hmm. communist or whatever it is that they want to tar you with. And so it's a very scary moment. And it is scary precisely because the language that we had and continue to have, hopefully, that signals plurality and pluralism is the same language that is being co-opted under the flag of singularity.
2: Mm -hmm. And
0: that is an extremely frightening experience that we're living through. So the thing that I want to talk about within that is this
1: piece around Control mm. and what I love about your book and how you talk about desire—you don't offer your own definition of desire in the book. You offer other people's thoughts and ideas, and and the thoughts and ideas that have been in in the Indian landscape and conversation. And yes, I love that you brought up the Hinduism isn't really a thing because there's just been a, such a broad scale of understanding of what practices are, what ideas have been fermented over time and the kind of Vedic religions were often in competition with Jainism and Buddhism as they were fermenting these followings. There is a piece where control has been a response to desire or there's this desire for purity Mm. that is older. I mean, there is colonialism and we can talk about colonial importance in control or for capitalistic purposes for whatever their reasons are but there's also been this desire for purity and often through caste that has been enforced and cultivated and beyond that so talk to me about what desire in its expansiveness in its breakthroughness also kind of cultivates this response whether that's through like yoga which is about controlling your senses you know, or it's through something more violent, which is maybe
0: through caste oppression or other things. Yeah. I mean, again, that's a great question because it is a salutary reminder that what we've been talking about, you know, pluralism of the Hindu pantheon and multiple gods and so on and so forth, the fundamental shame, of course, of the Hindu religions that continues to haunt us is the caste system, Mm -hmm. which, as we all know, is fundamental to it. And as a lot of thinkers, including Ambedkar, have said, it's not like you can purge The caste system and still have Hinduism. In order to sort of get rid of caste, you're actually getting rid of what we understand as Hinduism today because it's that central to it. Right. And so what is interesting to me to notice is that if you look at various texts and you look at sort of various mythologies, various tales, various poems, it's not that caste ever disappears but that there is always a conversation that is about more than caste or other things other than caste or that caste gets sort of woven in in a few more interesting ways than it does today. So, for instance, just to give you an example of the Manusmati, which is the most vile, the most horrific treatise on caste and you know multiple things around caste, mm-hmm. of which desire is one. Mm. But it is also interesting because it says if two men have sex with one another, if an upper caste man has sex with a lower caste man, then that's horrible because he loses caste. And it's okay for the lower caste man because he actually, you know, gains in prestige because he doesn't actually lose caste. Mm. The punishment for that is really just to take a dip in holy water to cleanse yourself and to get your caste back. The punishment is harsher for sex between two women. The older boy, it involves cutting off the older woman's finger because, but what's fascinating to me is that Manu seems to know exactly what men and women do. Mm with one another, right? Mm -hmm. And so the older woman's finger, the the finger that stimulates Mm -hmm. is that, you know, you need to cut that off because you're older and you should know better. His obsession, even in those scenarios, is caste rather than sexuality. And so it's just interesting to me that even as caste as a vile phenomenon has always existed, its relation to desire has been interesting rather than only one note or rather than only sort of singular. So, So that is interesting to me. But if we sort of fast forward and come to you know, the 21st century, or wherever we are right now, caste has become so horrific. Mm -hmm. The number of women who get raped as part of caste warfare, the number of men who get beaten, stoned, lynched to death because they have violated some kind of caste rule, of course, is is rampant. These are stories you hear every day.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Again, what's interesting in this regard is that the so-called phenomenon of honor killings, mostly in North India, but also in other parts of India, and among diaspora Indians as well, I believe, especially in the UK. So honor killings are all about responding to desire that is no longer under control. Right. So whether that's along lines of caste, or religion, or sexuality, Mm -hmm. or region, language, economic backgrounds, whatever it is, It is a question of desire showing up non-alignment rather than alignment. And so the immediate response to that, as you quite rightly pointed out, is an attempt to reestablish control Mm. or reassert control, often with a lot of violence, as the name honor killings itself suggests, you know, often by killing people or killing the people involved in it. So, yes, desire has always invoked extreme reactions. Right. And it always has invoked extreme reactions because it is the thing that is always liable to slip out of the grids of control that we have socially around us.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
0: always the thing that is likely to sort of question or push the button to ask, you know, how does this make sense? Why does this matter? Yes. Just to give you a, a tiny little example, the Supreme Court recently was talking about abortion. I mean, this is, this is a, a timely thing, at least for the US, for allowing uh, an unmarried woman to abort it, you know, at twenty-four weeks or something of the kind. As you might know, abortion has always been freely available in India, so yes. that's not the question. But the question was, can an unmarried woman get an abortion? And as the lawyer says, what does her marital status have to do with the price of anything? Yeah. The judges actually concurred, and you know, told the solicitor, additional solicitor general, arguing for the government, that you know, come up with a better argument because this makes no sense. So there is an understanding that your the status of your desire. It, is not actually important or is not to be governed by the status of the law or the status of social control, except that it is to such an extent that desire is constantly being made to heal, except in cases, you know, when it runs rampant or when you have good judges in cases who say, but what does this have to do with anything?
1: Right. What I love about that kind of is this, this potency of desire. It, it's world changing. Mm. It makes you ungovernable if you truly yeah. surrender into it. And I think there's something about queer desire, where, and by queer, I just mean a desire that breaks norms, yeah. that is in particular both attacked, but also has that kind of potential to change what we know to be the norm. There is this one piece about the desire in education, and you write a chapter on that, which I loved about like where desire, where the location of that erotic desire can lie in, not just in the sexual. right? Although sexual is one, one exploration of it. But, you know, there's this moment where Vivekananda, who we know today as Vivekananda, goes to see Ramakrishna Paramhans. And in the moment that they see each other, Ramakrishna knows that I'm in the presence of a soulmate, that he tells him that I've been waiting for you. Yeah, And that exchange is enough for him to then, for Vivekananda to spend the rest of the five years that Ramakrishna was alive with him. And not only that, the exchanges that they had, the kind of you know, and you describe this as it's kind of an intellectual century exchange that may not be sexual because Vivekananda is quite against sex. Yeah. But that kind of bonding the rest of his life, he kind of dedicated to even creating a space where men could have that kind of bonding with gurus. Yeah. And, I mean, I feel like the book is kind of in exploration of that specific type of desire, mm. a desire that is so ungovernable and unbound and not controllable. Yeah. That it will change the world. What, what is it about that? exchange between a couple of people
0: or, you know, maybe a small group of people that emanates out into the world. Right. The question of education has always fascinated me, you know, given that I am myself a professor. And partly why it fascinates me now is because we are living at a moment, as as you know, where there is increasing discomfort around the idea of sexual relations in schools, universities, in the classroom, Mm -hmm among professors, uh, between professors and students, and so on and so Mm -hmm. forth. At one level, one can completely understand that discomfort Mm -hmm. and completely understand why there need to be certain rules in place. But why there need to be certain rules in place is precisely because it is so rampant. that There is something about the space of education that actually is a space of desire. And so to try and leech that space of desire to me actually seems to be a loss rather than a gain of any kind. And so I'm interested in that question of education because, you know, from Plato onwards, you know, Vivekananda onwards, Nizamuddin and Khosrow onwards, there's always been an understanding of education as being a deeply sensual practice, whether or not it is sexual, as you put it, right? It doesn't necessarily have to involve a skin-to-skin touch, but there is something about, you know, people saying the brain is the biggest sex organ in the body. Mm -hmm, There's mm -hmm. something about that kind of intensity Mm. That is deeply charged. And so for me, what was interesting was to try and look again at educational scenarios to think about how desire might be crucial to rather than an impediment to education. And so then then sort of force the gaze back on our current moment to think about what we might be losing by legislating desire out of the classroom. Or legislating desire out of the educational space,
2: mm-hmm.
1: making it clinical as opposed to just just the rawness of what it has been for a
0: very very long time. Right, and they're also making it therefore instrumental, right? I mean, it has many yes. offshoots yes. because then people want to study in order to get a job rather than in order to learn. Because in order to learn, and again in a capitalist worldview, it's just much too decadent, right? It's it, to sit with ideas to have conversations, that just seems like a waste of time when you could really be acquiring skills to get your job. But the milieu that I'm exploring is about sitting with ideas. It's about writing poetry. It's about thinking philosophy. It's about all those things that, you know, I mean, even as fabulous a person as Barack Obama, remember, he said, well, it's not like I'm studying art history. And he got so much flack for that all those years ago, because that was an indicator of the the view of education, which is increasingly becoming instrumental.
1: Yeah, it's about what purpose is it serving outside of your thinking and outside. But that thinking is its whole world. And that brings me back actually to something which is like you write about how the, in the New Testament, in the beginning, God created the world. There's a materiality mm-hmm. to creation. And while in Rigveda, which is maybe the oldest text, in the beginning, there was desire. Yeah. And I wonder what, what that dichotomy is. If, if desire is the first thing, is desire is the thing that creates everything, how do you think that shapes our, our cultural context? What do you think that creates as opposed to if materiality, that is the first thing?
0: Right. A materiality and a legality, right? I Oof, mean, you, you, then, yes. uh, then you go by the word. But if desire, as you yourself said at the beginning, is this kind of thing that can attach to different objects, attach to different bodies, but it's also greater than the sum of its parts. It's also much, much more than anything that we can attribute to it. Whereas, of course, the emphasis on the word, as the our definite article, the, makes mm-hmm. very clear, is supposed to be about specificity and about sort of a block of understanding. And, you know, this goes back to the idea of having 33 million gods, the idea that there is always plus, there's always a plurality. And there is something about this sort of entire Indic subcontinent in which those ideas have been reinforced century after century after century. And so, for instance, when Islam comes to India, for instance, and Sufism starts to take root in this really strong manner, even after it is vilified or demonized in other parts, like even in Turkey, it has a very, very active life in the Indian subcontinent, especially as it's talking about male-male desire, especially as it's talking about male homoeroticism. And so you have a sense of, and and I again dare say this maybe in a biblical understanding of the world, religion is seen as the opposite of sex, right? Religion is seen as disciplined explanatory obedient whereas sex is seen as dirty uncivilized and therefore to be shunned in the subcontinent here there's never been an opposition between religion and desire Mm. and so you know not just the the millions of of indian gods all of whom are up to no good right they're always sort of hatching plots they're always sort of saying oh show me you know show me yours and I'll show you mine right or you know all these things about cross-dressing about uh, drop spilling your semen about being so overcome with desire so on and so forth this goes on all the time with the Sufis it's all about yes you know I'm thinking about God but boy are you cute right and so there is a sense of religion not being opposed to desire Mm. which I think was one of the reasons why it was allowed or understood to exist everywhere. But the minute you start sort of separating realms, the minute you start carving out saying religion, good over here, sex, bad over here, that's when you start separating, compartmentalizing your life, frankly. And yeah. that's what sort of leads to all kinds of noxious results, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and I'm seeing the connection
1: between education over here, desire over here also, you have to separate this out in order to be productive, to, to go into production mode. Exactly. Yeah. You write about how desires have not been named. And that naming creates a freedom, which is interesting because in the West, and I and I know you've written a lot about this even after this book about the kind of identity politics. I, I know when I emailed you and I was like, cutie book, and you're like, I don't like that, which I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> which I appreciate it. I want to talk about this not naming. Yeah. What do you think that creates? I know there's like a conversation in the West that naming supports recognition. Yeah. Naming supports Maybe feeling like a sense of belonging where someone can see you and that creates community. Yeah. But I want to talk about the complications of that. What do you think naming creates and what freedom does it take away?
0: Yeah. I mean, again, I think I want to start by saying that I completely understand the desire for a name. Uh, I think it is perfectly sort of easy to see the connection between saying, I have a name and I can be recognized. And I think that idea of recognition is very important for many of us, um, especially those of us who feel that we have been unrecognized or that we yeah. you know, exist on the margins. And so I completely sympathize with that desire to name. For me, what's interesting is that if we actually sit with that desire and think about where it's coming from and more importantly, where it might be leading us to, then actually we might not be that attracted to it, or that might not be that enthralled to it. Absolutely. Because what it does actually, and, and we have to remember this, and this was an idea that someone like Michelle Foucault talked about throughout, which is that naming only serves the purposes of the state. It only serves the purposes of those who want to run a census, of those who want to tell or adjudicate among citizens on the basis of what they think of as fit, right? And so all these categories that we've come up with are actually all state-mandated categories. I mean, maybe there are some of us who would, but it's not like we go around saying, you know, I'm a flower. Yeah. And the state yeah. will say, well, that makes no sense to us, so you've got to choose among one of these categories. Right. right. And which is why all the forms we fill out endlessly, you right, Mr., Miss, whatever... And of course, what the wonderful thing in India, at least, is that there's always a box, and and know lots of parts of the West as well, always a box that says other. Um, and I always have ticked other, because it just sort of seems to me that uh, it's none of your business. I mean, frankly, it is none of anybody's business, who I am or what I am, uh, because that takes away from me a certain kind of freedom to be someone else tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the question of naming is always a question of who is naming whom and to whose advantage is that name? The other part of it is that if we name ourselves and we name ourselves because we want to be understandably part of a community because we have felt without a community, so on and so forth. For me, that is politically problematic because I think for me, that militates against what I think of as building solidarities. Which is to say, it shouldn't matter to me who you have sex with, Mm -hmm. what your gender might be for me to be able to stand by your side if you are facing any kind of oppression. Yeah. Which is to say, I should not depend on your identity to stand by you in times of need. And that's for me is what is solidarity building. So if I say I am a woman, let's say, And I say that because I think other women will be in solidarity with me. I think we're losing out on a whole host of people who might be able to be in solidarity with me if we think not on the basis of identity, but in terms of, say, oppression or justice or need or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's much more important to build community not on the basis of identity, but on the basis of solidarity, because Mm -hmm. I think that's when you get people to cross borders. Right. That's when you get people to say, I'm not saving you because I belong with you. I'm saving you because I don't think anybody should have to go through this shit. Right. And so that that to me is politically much, much more powerful because it actually takes the question of identity out of circulation and inserts it or replaces it with a question of You know, any number of things, of justice, of whatever it is that you want to replace it with. But it's not rooted in a self that is called an I and an identity that can be recognized.
1: Right. I mean, this idea around borders and bordering, which, of course, we're living in a world that is deeply bordered. And the state takes it really seriously. How are we microcosms of what the institutions are creating? But I want to take a little bit of a turn because what I was thinking about when you talked about borders was this movie that I watched when I was growing up, which was Refugee, or I watched We Are Zara. And then there were all these movies where the border didn't matter for love to exist, for love to thrive. And I want to ask you, there's a place maybe early in the book where you write about, you know, love tends to capture desire with a sentimental framework of emotions, often through marriage. And so I want to talk because because desire is something that is uncontrollable, that 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 extends beyond anything. What do you think love is? And what is its relationship to desire inside of romantic love and beyond it in all the locations that desire exists?
0: God, Umang, you ask really easy to answer small questions, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) It's just casual conversation. Exactly, right? (laughs) Well, remember when we were just talking before we started recording about crash landing on you? Um, and this yes. idea of, you know, this Korean drama. And I said to you that Korean drama, one of the reasons I love it is because it reminds me of Bollywood. Mm-hmm. And it reminds mm-hmm. me of a certain kind of Bombay cinema. Because for me, what has always been best about Bollywood and that, again, we're in danger of losing today is Maybe. the notion of crossing borders. Yes. Now, that can be a literal border between India and Pakistan, just as it is between North Korea and South Korea, yes. and crash landing on you. It can be a border of gender. There are often sort of gender confusions in Bollywood cinema, as there are in K drama as well. Yep. As there was, for instance, you know, in Shakespeare's drama, which is another area of my interest. For me, the best kind of Bollywood film, K drama, whatever it is, is always about uh, questioning borders rather than acquiescing to mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. It's always about pushing the boundary, and that's what we all want to see, right? There are no stories in the world that are popular because they abide by boundaries. Yes. The most popular literature across time has always been about flouting boundaries. Now, why is that? Is that because we are all drawn to it, even though we might not all be able to flout those boundaries on our own? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a large part of it, right? We might need to live the most conventional lives, but there is still something in us that yearns for that overthrowing of convention. Which is why films like Veer Zara can do so well, uh, because it's all about, you know, we will we will get rid of uh, geopolitical history. Yes. Our desire can do that. And and that and that's a very, very powerful phenomenon. When you ask about love, I mean, yeah, you know, I don't have anything against love. People can be in love. <laughs> that's absolutely fine. Um, but, I, you know, I think the phrase falling in love is very telling. Because it actually suggests you're falling into a bit of a pit, into a bit of a hole, <laughs> into a bit of a trap. And the trap is that love is actually the socially acceptable face of desire. Mm. It is the face that has so many conventions from your hallmark greeting cards to, you know, red roses, moonlight, all these tropes of desire mm-hmm. that are domesticated by love mm. so this is not to say that we shouldn't feel love of course we should and, and that's just great but I don't think we should confuse love with desire because desire is not as easily domesticated and so that's why I didn't call it a history of love in India you know for instance another really fabulous book same-sex love in India by uh, Ruthvenita and Salim Kidwai and, I, and you know you probably read it and they talk about why they chose the word love and for them it's because love is sort of capacious but for me Choosing love is always at the expense of desire, not at the expense of desire, but at the expense of the edginess of desire, Hmm. because it sort of sands down the edges and makes it much, much more palatable. In the Indian subcontinent today, even today, love marriage is considered a bit shocking and not acceptable. But I think what is not acceptable about love marriage is that it's someone's desire being nakedly brought to the fore. Whereas in societies where love is not just acceptable, but the norm, like you have to be in love, you have to fall in love, that's blunted the edginess of desire entirely.
1: I wonder if part of it is that we talk about love as some sort of central force, but it's not actually, mm. right? It's not actually the central force. It's actually control. It's actually something else. And it gets shaped as love because marriage as an important institution, and you write it, you have a chapter on marriage and talked about the various kinds of, the kind of institutional marriage that has happened in India. The institutions that were created were, and Gandharva, which is the love marriage today, was to control women's freedom and sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wonder if part of that is just how society has named love something that isn't necessarily freeing, isn't necessarily expansive. Right. Love has become this taming of your desire because of the desire truly was fulfilled. That's just a wondering that I have because I do resonate with love deeply, but I agree there is a way in which we are trying to tame it. Yeah, exactly. I think there is something about you explore in your chapter around yoga, Mm. there's a yogic path and there's this tantric path. There is. Yoga and Kama. And so, can you talk about that world of yoga and Kama? Because I know yoga is not this really big buzzword and this like export from India. Yeah. And it's interesting that that is a chosen export. Yes. Because it is about controlling something. Whereas in Kama Sutra, it's about exploring something. Yeah. And Also in the tantric path, which is different from some of the uh, yogic path, there is a lot of exploration of the bodily desire. So can you talk to me about those differences? And why do you think it's interesting that yoga has now been elevated in this way that it is today?
0: Right. I mean, the classic mythological embodiment of yoga is also the classic mythological embodiment of karma, which is the figure of Shiva. We had thousands of years in which yoga and karma were not opposed to one another, that the greatest yogi was also the most sensual of them all, of the gods. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, Shiva is known as the sort of the great lover, but also as the great ascetic. And so these two things are not necessarily seen as opposed, or historically, they have not been seen as opposed. What happens to go back to your old friend Vivekananda is that yoga becomes tamed more and more as time goes on, as you know, as we become colonized, yoga becomes more and more a path towards purification, and mm. towards male purification, by the way, you have to protect your semen, you can't let it spill. This was Vivekananda's mm. big thing. And yoga becomes a way of actually bodybuilding. That's the sort of kinky, quirky thing about Vivekananda <laughs> is that he, you know, he really is a sort of a gym bunny in that sense, right? He's a bodybuilder. Yeah. But it has become even more purified as time has gone on. And under the current regime, which is all about singularity and seeming purity, yoga becomes the natural export. It becomes the thing of saying Mm -hmm. this is the face of a singular Hinduism, which is about purity and which is about Mm -hmm. chastity, which is about asceticism. Hence the image of the current prime minister as an unmarried (laughs) Celebrate yogi, right? And and of course, mm. the title of the person who's presumed to succeed in as prime minister is itself yogi. You don't even need to say more than that. Um, but there is a way, and that's what I was interested in that chapter is that yoga is neither Hindu, nor is it about sensual deprivation, right? Mm. As you will remember from what I say in that, the kind of yoga that we're practicing today is a yoga that is utterly Islamic because we don't get it until the Mughals actually translate certain texts, speak to certain fakirs and put down these poses. The yoga that was written in the Yoga Sutra doesn't actually have the poses that we perform today. And so like so many things in the subcontinent, yoga is actually deeply syncretic. And it's syncretic, not only across religions, but across desires as well. Because if you think about it, and you know, I don't do yoga, I don't know if you do. But if you think about all the sort of bodily contortions and the bodily postures, it's very much dependent on a certain kind of pushing of the boundaries of the body. It's about sort of saying, let me see if I can make this arm do things that it's not supposed to do. Let me see if I can walk on my hands. Right. I mean, no one is supposed to do that. And so there is fundamentally built into yoga a lack of conventionality, a sort of emphasis or of a resistance to conventionality, which is the only way one can explain Shiva as being both a yogi and a karma adherent or a karma devotee. Right. So it's all about, isn't it, the narrative that one tells about these things? The narrative that is being told about yoga today is that it is this pure ascetic, Hindu tradition, all the indicators historically suggest that it is a syncretic mixed tradition that is not divorced from karma because, of course, Shiva is the god of the tantric way. And what Vivekananda does, actually, is to try and separate. So it's not just separating from Islam, it's separating from various strands of Hinduism as well, right? Hence, the multiple kinds of Hinduism, right? So it's a sort of pushing away of Shaivite Tantric traditions, which, as you know, are full of, right, the standard offering at Shiva temples is alcohol and meat. Yes, that Tantric people drink menstrual blood, it is a deeply corporeal practice. Mm-hmm. It's a practice that actually thinks about the body, its borders, its boundaries and pushes those boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. It's set in graveyards, it's about dealing with death with mortification. It is deeply deeply sensual and so cleansing our current version of yoga from all that has been really quite a feat yeah. and that is the yoga that we think has always been yoga today which is certainly not the case
1: despite all the attempts there's still the story of krishna and radha that that perseveres. There's a story of the 14,000 gopis in Madhuban that Krishna has sex with at the same time or gives them an orgasmic experience. How that orgasmic experience happens is a matter of mystery. I, I want to talk more about that because one of the things that you taught write in the book is that celibacy was a way or like even this kind of yogic path of like, not experiencing the bodily way, but it was about taking that same erotic charge and pushing it upward, right. which is some of the ideas in yoga. And even in so many people obsessed with celibacy are actually obsessed. That obsessive erotic energy is kind of getting pushed into some other direction. right? And there's also so much history of just an exploration of our gods, exploring the fullness of their desire. Yeah. What do you think? the desire in celibacy is because you know you explore that at length in the book and the kind of history of the stories that endure that are about breaking all the boundaries and i think krishna in specific who has such a big following who maybe people don't want to talk about some of the more messier parts of him today but it's just what
0: the story is absolutely and you know krishna was one of the specific figures that the british recoiled from Mm -hmm. precisely because of all these stories of you know the fourteen thousand orgasmic experiences all the artwork that has come down to us, all the poetry that has come down to us that celebrates precisely Krishna's promiscuity, sexual promiscuity, his delight in the pleasures of the flesh. And that, yes, of course, as you say, is sort of in the process of being scrubbed away, but cannot be because there is no Krishna left if you scrub all this away. As for celibacy, which you know Krishna is not known for because he's busy <laughs> sort of having these orgasmic experiences, <laughs> I mean I find celibacy really interesting, not just because you know you have people more and more today sort of wondering whether they're celibate or whatever it is. Um, but historically, there has always been a very interesting relationship between celibacy and desire. If you look at texts like the Ramayana and Mahabharata, there are always celibate people, but who have to have children, and so but they don't want to have sex. So then they import another man to sort of impregnate their wives. And so what's interesting is that celibacy, again, is not divorced from sexuality. If anything, it shows us the multiple faces of sexuality, because I don't think celibacy is not sexual. But it's sexual with a different face, or sexual with a different hue, with a different tone, mm. and we need to recognize it as such. There is a way in which, of course, celibacy was so deeply attractive. To, again, to go back to something among that you said early on, one of the reasons people say why religions like Buddhism and Jainism gained so much traction is not only because they provided an alternative to the caste-ridden structure of Hinduism, yep. but also because they advocated celibacy and. It seems historically that a lot of people found celibacy attractive. I mean, isn't that interesting for us to for us to think about today? And in fact, one of the arguments, and I talk about this in the book as well, is that the so-called Vedic religions quickly then backtracked after saying everyone should have sex all the time and desire is everywhere. And they say, oh, wait, wait, wait. We'll also build in a period of celibacy. And then that becomes known as the four stages of life. And in first, third and fourth, you're not meant to have sex. And now suddenly, that realm of the sexual got shrunk to the second stage, which is the householder stage or the grihastash, where you can have sex. And so there is a way in which celibacy was deeply attractive. Is that because people didn't want to feel any kind of sort of neural? Pleasure, any sort of type <laughs> of nerve endings, or was it because they thought there were other ways in which those nerve endings could be tingled? Because it has been so demonized in so many ways, we frankly just haven't done the work of exploring it. Mm. So for me, the only thing I began to sketch in the book in that chapter were these multiple scenarios in which, for me, a certain kind of erotic charge plays out without it necessarily being. Genital intercourse. Right. And for me, those erotic charges, whether they're, you know, wrestling akadas or whether they are sort of same sex hostels or whether they are, you know, different sex hostels, whatever it is, that sexuality actually does creep out in different ways. And I think celibacy is one of those ways rather than being the opposite of sexuality.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting. And, you know, something you were pointing out before was like some Western ideas or spaces are seen to be the liberated spaces. But interestingly, there is so much conversation and obsession. Or as you write about some of the things where desire automatically uh, collapsed into sexuality in the West. Yeah. And there's just an automatic connotation that desire means sexuality. But what I hear you describing and what I know you described in the book is that these so many different locations of desire
0: that don't have to locate in one place or only have to take a particular shape. Right. And even if you just think in terms of language, to go back to the question of naming earlier, in most non-Anglo Uh, spaces in the world people would simply not recognize themselves as gay for instance right so there are so many men in India who would have sex with other men without necessarily saying I'm homosexual or gay because they might not even have heard the term and don't think it has anything to do with them so I just sort of feel a certain level of what's the word maybe humility maybe Mm. openness that we Mm. need to actively cultivate that humility and openness not to assume that every man having sex with another man is homosexual or every woman having sex with another woman is a lesbian. And, And I think that kind of openness actually is going to be wonderful for us rather than restrictive or rather than, you know, apolitical. Right. There's almost this weird like thirst that has been generated because of the years of shaming
1: that now everything needs to be put into a box. But really, at the end of the day, the box is also a problem. Yes. So, Yeah. I definitely relate to that and understand that. I want to talk a little bit about similarly to I think sexuality, gender is something that is played within you, you know, you talked about makeup at the beginning and yeah. hair and Krishna, who I think often I mean him and Radha cross-dress in part of their love games. Right. You know, in, in Sufi poetry, so many the men who are having are talking about their lover, which is another man, oftentimes, and they put themselves in the places of women for sexuality. And when you talk more about that and also the kind of justification where in you write in the chapter on psychoanalysis you write about how freud has this particular idea around the oedipus complex and what what that means is that men are really afraid of being, becoming women and that fear keeps them heterosexual <laughs> right. Which is, I don't know, whatever. I don't I don't even I don't necessarily it doesn't really compute, but I think it's it's something that is a cornerstone of his philosophy. And obviously he is a central figure in psychoanalysis even today. What do you think the difference is and what do you think the pantheon and the broadness of gender and sexual because even in India homosexuality might have been illegal, but transsexuality has been legal for a while. Yeah. So talk to me about that space of gender as its own thing, as its own
0: infinite variety. Right, right. Okay. The reason gender is naturalized or seen as being a binary bifurcation between male and female is because you're working backwards from the idea of biological reproduction right right <laughs> you take a body that produces an egg you take a body that produces sperm and say look there are only two kinds of bodies in the world and you have to be either one or the other that logic has you know enslaved all of us but of course you know just even a slight nudge saying so does that mean a woman's body that doesn't produce an egg is no longer a female body that's not a question that anyone has asked right and and it's just just very very bizarre that we're so acquiescent about this Mm. so yes there is a way in which and i speak about this specifically in relation to freud and the oedipus complex and i think freud was absolutely brilliant and he sort of at least started organizing this conversation in the west in ways that you know because of the sort of biblical shame attached to sexuality was simply not even talked about. So I think that's something that we will always be uh, indebted to him for. But yes, he is speaking from a particular location in which gender is absolutely reified as male and female. The noxiousness of masculinity is that it is always afraid that it will be taken away from it. Mm-hmm. Right. So therefore, the castration anxiety, the threat of castration, as in you will no longer be a man, which is less so a threat for women, because it's, you know, it, womanhood or femininity is not accorded a, as high a status as masculinity, mm-hmm. which is why, of course, historically, male homosexuality has always been punished more than female homosexuality, right? Uh, because at a certain level, no one really cares what women do. Everyone's <laughs> obsessed with what men do. and And frankly, that should allow us to have a degree of sympathy for men because right. their lives are policed in really in ways that they don't even realize or recognize. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
0: So the entire basis of the Oedipus complex is that men are going to be threatened and shamed into the possibility of not being men. Mm-hmm. Now, what the Indian psychoanalyst who was corresponding with Freud thinking about is that what happens if your location is slightly different and you're coming from traditions in which the movement of male to female specifically is not that bizarre or unheard of or untoward or commented upon Mm -hmm. then the threat is not as high as you need it to be in order to enforce obedience And so he was saying, you know, this is Girindranath Bose, he says, I don't see examples of therapist complex so much Mm. among my Indian patients. And so he was trying to theorize why that might be the case. But to go back to a different aspect of your question, the movement is almost always from male to female rather than female to male. Mm. And there are both, I mean, there are always interesting reasons about it, but the move from male to female is meant to signal Desire, adoration, devotion—right. So mm. it's it's all these men who want to sort of pledge allegiance to God as a male lover or to male lovers will make themselves over as women. Mm. The slightly problematic aspect of that is, of course, that the position of devotion was always seen as the feminine position. So right. the one who will do the adoring is always going to be the woman, and therefore the man is going to change himself into into a woman. I frankly don't see a problem with that. I think men changing into women is just fantastic and wonderful. (laughs) You know, I don't understand the sort of entire J.K. Rowling transphobia that exists today because it's like, you know, I think it's just absolutely wonderful. And yes, I think it is problematic that in order to narrate oneself as subservient, the gender that gets taken on is the feminine gender. And that is something that perhaps we might not want to um, ascribe ourselves to. But if you see the joy with which, say, some of Krishna's disciples or Shiva's disciples or the Sufi poets, the joy, the delight that they take Mm -hmm. in describing themselves as women, it's like that becomes an absolutely earth shattering force. Mm. And what it shatters, of course, is that narrow binary distinction. Because here you have a man, you know, and my favorite example is a Sufi poet called Bulleshah from the 18th century, who will narrate himself as a woman, but not necessarily say he's not a man. Right. So he doesn't make the choice that the state gives him. Right. And he just says, you know, um, this is what I'm feeling. Yes. You know, and, and he narrates himself as wearing a burqa, but he calls himself a man. And so it's like, you know, I'm going to dress as a woman. I am a man. Do with it what you will. It's your problem, not mine. Right. And, and this is why, of course, the entire sort of transgender movement that we're living in right now, the reason why it can be so powerful is because it has the possibility of allowing us to move beyond gender rather than just moving from one gender to another. Mm-hmm. Because when you move from one gender to another, you're still within a very state sanctioned scenario. Right. But if like Bulisha, and I, I would say Bulisha is transgender, if you're actually saying gender is not something that is going to contain me, I just think that is such a powerful theoretical uh, frame to occupy. And I really hope that we're able to live up to that frame. There is that kind of uh, possibility
1: of the infinite within trans experience. And we are trying to, I think there is so much of distilling the infinite within ourselves that I think is so beautiful. I know I've kept you here for a while. I have one last question before we wrap it up, which is about death. So you opened the book with something I didn't know about, which is the Gay Taj Mahal, which is the Jamali Kamali Dargah in Delhi. You know, there's a Sufi saint and some unknown person named Kamali who is buried next to him, who is not his wife, who, uh, you know, he was, uh, the Sufi saint was married to somebody. Nobody knows what their relationship really was. But to love someone enough to want to be buried next to them, which is what Shah Jahan did with Taj Mahal, which is this monumental love that everybody goes and visits. You write about love suicides. I was actually reading uh, Love in the Time of Cholera by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And in the opening, one of the things he talks about is how common love suicides are. If if there's a suicide that comes across the doctor's desk, he assumes it's a love suicide. Right. And, and this is in the Caribbean In uh, the book is set in post-colonial era and early post-colonial era there. And so there's this thing about a desire that will take you to that space where there is some sort of seeking of the freedom of its expression that it will take you that far. Yeah. And so I want to ask you about the relationship of both being remembered or desire beyond death, or death not being an impediment to desire, or it being one more portal for union.
0: I mean, you know, of course, that orgasm in in English languages and in Europe has always been described as the little death. (laughs) Sexual orgasm is always, you know, le more mort in French. This notion of death and desire actually has always been intertwined that mm. the moment of orgasm is so important for people thinking about genital intercourse because it actually destroys borders and boundaries which is what desire does rather than reinforcing them right so it's dissolution it's not resolution right you, you, mm. you dissolve you sort of dissolve your, your bodily space, your bodily sphere mm. um, and for however long you occupy that space, you are in that space of limbo, that space of nowhereness and nothingness. And so that attraction to that you know and and all these sort of snuff movies and snuff videos all sort of encapsulate that kind of attraction of what it means to feel like you're dissolving, rather than substantiating in terms of desire. So there has always been historically that relationship between desire and death. Always that, that idea of death is the only end of desire. And end not in terms of this finish point, but end in terms of the goal of desire. Death is always the goal of desire. And again, Freud was actually one of the first people who started talking about this. And then later psychoanalytic theorists also started talking about what they call the death drive, which is that we're always sort of being impelled towards oblivion rather Mm. than towards something that's going to make us be. And that has, I think, really fascinating consequences, doesn't it, for all this idea of naming, labeling, uh, and we're talking about desire overcoming boundaries or shattering boundaries. Shattering is another word, right? The verb of violence that's associated with sexual orgasm. It's a shattering experience, precisely because it does not conduce to ego formation, but ego deformation and and shattering. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So death has always been linked with desire, which is why Shiva, of course, is the god of destruction, is the god of death, Mm -hmm. and also the, the ultimate god of Of desire, you know, and Krishna Mm -hmm. um, also like Shiva, blue, not an avatar of Shiva, but still. Um, Again, if you look at sort of Islamic traditions and Sufi poetry, it's always about merging with your beloved. It's always about dying, the death of the self. So the death of the self is actually absolutely crucial to the histories of desire all over the world. When we come to the specific idea of physical death, of suicides, for instance, or mausoleums or dargahs, there is, of course, all over the world again, but I will just speak of the subcontinent, and especially in terms of Bollywood films, this idea of janam janam ka saath, right? That we will be together age after age after age, no matter how many times we may be born and die, we will be together. And being buried together is the ultimate sign of that togetherness. Um, right. So Shah Jahan, Mugtaz, Mahal. But what's fascinating about all the Sufi dargahs—not all, many of the Sufi dargahs around the country, around Pakistan—is the fact that there are almost always two men buried side by side, and so that mm-hmm. attests to a certain kind of historical comfort, as the poetry also attests to, of saying that I, you are my life and death partner you are the one that I want to spend my life with and you are the one I want to lie beside after I'm dead. And this was obviously a tradition that was honored after the peer died, right? And that's one of the things I talk about, which is that the peer dies first and then it's up to his followers to bury the chosen disciple next to him and they all do it. So it's not like once the peer is gone, they say, okay, now... He can't look at us or discipline us, so we won't do it. So this was an idea that was very much respected, which I find very interesting. And the more mundane, and by mundane, I only mean there aren't mausoleums built to them, but the more sort of everyday suicide pact, especially in India um, and the subcontinent these days, unfortunately, mostly between women, because I guess they're completely disenfranchised. But if you read the suicide letters, or talk about the suicide pacts with failed suicides of women, it's always about this world is not smart enough, good enough to understand us. We're going to go somewhere where we will be forever together. Mm. And so there is, of course, desperation. There is frustration. There is, as with all suicides, I presume, but there is also a conviction That where we're going is going to actually be great because we're going to be together and no one's going to part us. So to me, that just seems to be another version of this close relationship between death and desire. And in many ways, killing yourself for desire. Think about Romeo and Juliet, for instance. Killing yourself for desire is perhaps the oldest trope associated with desire in the world. And so these love suicides or love pacts just seem to be, to my mind, fairly logical extensions of that idea.
1: Hopefully you can experience a death of environment and not necessarily self, so you can experience that exactly and and I love this idea of an ego death because I think there is something about experiencing desire experiencing union that requires you to not just be yourself like it's not just about you it's about something so much bigger that you surrender to exactly well mother, I, I really feel I really love your book and so I could really talk to you <laughs> for a you. very long time and I really really appreciate your time uh, and your vision and the work that you've done in this book, because I feel like it was really gratifying to read and, to, and it was expansive in its mm. concepts of desire that I think sometimes for me, it felt the conversations I was having was feeling limiting. Thank you for the gift of your book.
0: Thank you, Among, for having read it so carefully and, having been, and being such a wonderful interlocutor. I, too, could go on talking to you for a long time. But, you know, it's, alas, creeping close to my bedtime. So, yes. But thank you so much. And thank you, Kumari, for doing all the sort of back-end work as well. It's been a real pleasure interacting with both of you.
1: Ah, what a joy that was. Once again. I'm your host, Among, and I'm the creative lead and producer for this podcast. Kamari is our other producer for the show. Editing and production work for this episode is done by Katie at Vocal Fry Studios. The transcript, which you can find at Possibilitiespodcast.com, is prepared by Jasmine. The graphics and social media coordination is done by Her Admin support is provided by Salma. And the music for the season is by Hashiel and Lady Pista. You can find us at Possibilities Podcast on Instagram or reach us through our website. The podcast is funded by Canada Council for the Arts, Toronto Arts Council, Groundswell Foundation, our Patreon members, and by the love of all of you, our dear listeners. Thank you so much for choosing to spend this time with us, and I'm so excited to share all that is coming up in this season. We love you.